Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. Very happy to have you here. Also happy to have our guest, Dr. Cedric Francois. He is the co-founder, CEO, and president of Appellus Pharmaceuticals. We've seen Appellus present in the OIS stage uh, once or twice and, and uh, had uh, Dr. Francois on a podcast just under a year ago. Uh, we got an update from uh, Dr. Francois about uh, Appellus's pipeline. Uh, of course, it's targeting the complement system like a number of companies are. It's going up to C3 inhibition, which makes it a little different than uh, some of the others. And uh, we covered that in a, in a podcast last year as well, looking at uh, the complement system. So we get an update on uh, Apelis's approach. They've had some some movement in the clinical fronts uh, and some other news to report. Also talked a little bit about non-ophthalmology issues, at least not directly related to ophthalmology. Dr. Francois was one of, uh, of over 150 CEOs to sign a letter uh, reminding the Trump administration of the importance of immigrants to our life sciences industry in this country, and it was a it was a unusual public stance for uh, for life sciences CEOs and VCs to take. So I wanted to talk to him about how he became involved in that and how he came to write a letter directly to uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, who is uh, Dr. Francois and Appellis's senator. Appellis is based in Kentucky, so. It's, uh, again, rare to see um, biotech CEOs take such public stances, so it definitely warranted a conversation. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with uh, Dr. Francois of Appellis. Before we get into that, I do want to remind you that OIS at ASCRS is coming up on May 4th. Go to OIS.net to register, and uh, we'll see you there in Los Angeles. Now let's get into this conversation. Dr. Cedric Francois, welcome back to the OIS podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you for inviting me. Great to have you. You've you presented at a few of our OISs, and I think you were in San Francisco and also joined us at uh, OIS at AAO. Uh, you had some updates that you presented there on APL2, but I was hoping we can get into that here. Uh, you're, you're focused on the uh, particular part of the complement system, and maybe to start off, uh, you can give us some background on uh, on Appellus, just in case someone didn't hear our earlier podcast. But I also wanted to touch upon uh, a letter you co-signed that's uh, been making the rounds on, on the social media networks regarding uh, the uh, the immigration order or ban uh, issued uh, by the uh, administration, the Trump administration earlier. It was a it was an unusual letter that uh, that 150 CEOs, biotech CEOs, and VCs had signed basically stating the, the impact that that could have on in innovation, which is a point I've been making to others as well. So I definitely want to hit upon that. But first, if you could reintroduce us to Appellus uh, a little bit and give us an update on uh, on APL2. Okay, sure. I'd be happy to. So, uh, so Appellus is a company that's uh, focused on the complement pathways and specifically on complement factor C3. Uh, what's unique about C3 is that it sits centrally in the cascade and by its mode of action, kind of blocks all of the effects of complement, regardless of the activation pathway that led to the activation of, of this enzymatic cascade. Uh, and uh, I'd say that the two driving um, motivations behind what we do with APEDIS is on one hand, to try to take advantage of that broad mechanism of action and go after 
proven or semi-proven complement-dependent indications and get a, a better, more broad effect than is uh, often available with the existing drugs in development or on the market sometimes. On the other hand, we are very interested in the crosstalk between complement and adaptive immunity. So uh, it's quite remarkable how this very old immune system called complement, which was there to take care of business while adaptive immunity evolved, plays a very important role in regulating uh, how that adaptive immune system behaves. And, uh, you know, we coined uh, the manipulation of that system as complement immunotherapy because at the end of the day, in a variety of indications, both autoimmune and oncological complement inhibition holds a lot of potential. And C3 within that has uh, quite a special spot. Um, we currently have two important clinical programs. One is a once-a-day subcutaneous injection, uh, which we will soon turn into a twice-a-week subcutaneous injection, where we can inhibit C3 systemically. And we are applying that to rare diseases with paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, PNH, being our lead indication. Mm -hmm. And PNH is a great indication for us because it's a very easy one to establish a proof of concept in an open label setting. It is also you know, an indication where there's a well-established patient population in the market, uh, thanks to Solaris, the C5 inhibitor on the market by Alexion. And so it allows us to really find out, can C3 do things that C5 cannot do? And now that we have completed our proof of concept studies, the answer to that is absolutely and very convincingly yes. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly in PNH, we will be in phase three clinical trials um, in September, but with the same molecule that we inject there subcutaneously, we have this fully enrolled phase two clinical trial, 246 patients uh, with geographic atrophy, where we do once a month and once every other month injections intravitreally. And that trial was designed really kind of mirroring and inspired at the very least by the Mahalo study, which mm -hmm. was the study that Genentech ran um, a few years ago in geographic atrophy, and which to date is the only study to show efficacy in phase two uh, or an ability with a drug compound to reduce the rate of geographic atrophy growth. And there we want to, and we will find out really soon now, um, in September, early in the fourth quarter, whether, you know, complement inhibition is a promising opportunity, whether C3 is potentially different from anti-factor D. And I think the, the two differences between Genentech's programs and ours are on one hand that APL2 is a C3 inhibitor, so, you know, broader acting also blocks the classical and, and lectin binding pathway. Um, and on the other hand, has a longer half-life. So APL2 has a half-life that... Um, we hope will allow every other month dosing and not just every month dosing. And beyond that, in complement, it's a very exciting year because a few months after we have our data readouts, Genentech will have their phase three readouts. Uh, and it will, if anything, teach us a lot about you know, the role of for complement um, in macular degeneration. That's that's we've got a big year coming, and, and after having some some unfortunate news and ending 2016, uh, hopefully 2017 will and more positively, Go, going to P&H, uh, the people are driving their car perhaps or jogging while listening to this podcast. Save them a Google and, and help me out. P&H is, uh, what is the disease and, and, and how does uh, how does your, uh, how, how do you hope to, to treat it? 
Yeah. So PNH is a disease of the bone marrow where uh, individuals that have a particular somatic mutation, so a mutation that actually evolves uh, not, not embryologically, but you know, later in life, causes a mutated clone of stem cells in the bone marrow to become dominant. And all of the blood elements that come from this dominant clone are now hypersensitive to continent activation. And red blood cells are particularly interesting there because these red blood cells, when they become attacked by complements, um, or better said, uh, suffer disproportionately from, com- from complement-mediated attack because of that mutation, these red blood cells get destroyed through two mechanisms. The first one is called intravascular hemolysis, where the terminal step of complement activation called the membrane attack complex directly destroys these red blood cells. And Solaris, so the anti-C5 antibody uh, on the market by Alexion, is very good at blocking that terminal step and stopping intravascular hemolysis. However, there's also upstream deposition of C3B, which is really the precursor to the formation of that MAC. And that C3B deposition is not blocked by Solaris. And what happens is that you have these red blood cells in circulation that carry more and more of the C3B on their surface until there's overload, quite frankly, and they get sequestrated in the liver and the spleen in a process called extravascular hemolysis. And the consequence of that is that patients with PNH on Solaris at a cost of about half a million dollars per year have average hemoglobins of 10, with very few patients having normal hemoglobins, with 35% of patients being transfusion-dependent, and very few patients having normal reticular sex. And so, in other words, hematologically unstable. And uh, at least based on the early data that we have, by going upstream and blocking complement factor C3, we get normal hemoglobins, we get normal reticulocytes. Uh, Again, this is open label, remains to be confirmed uh, in phase three, of course, Um, but uh, data indicative, if anything, that C3 inhibition does something vastly different than just blocking the terminal pathway. And in PNH, the promises, the goal that we have is to allow these patients to live a more normal life again. Because what happens now is if you're on Solaris with PNH, you have to get a perfusion every two weeks intravenously for which you have to travel. You're hematologically instable, so you have to see a PNH specialist every eight or 12 weeks. Um, And our hope is that with this twice a week subcutaneous administration of APL2, where we have great room temperature stability on top of that, um, people basically, you know, might have to see their PNH specialist every three or six months, uh, but they will be hematologically stable with normal hemoglobins and, and, and lead more normal lives again. I just want to take a quick break from the conversation to, uh, again, remind you all that uh, OIS at ASCRS is coming up on May 4th. We're adding a, uh, a breakout session uh, centered on the FDA. We've had that before, and uh, it's backed by popular demand. So if you want to be uh, sitting in on that session uh, to hear uh, directly from FDA officials about their review of uh, ophthalmology products, please do go to ois.net to uh, register. Those uh, breakout sessions are first come, first serve. So if you want to get a seat, you should register right away. Now back to this interview with Dr. Cedric Francois. And how does your success in at, with PNH inform your development uh, in, for drugs in, in ophthalmology and for, and for geographic atrophy? Is there what is the connection there? Uh, does success in one 
vertical help you uh, sort of direct development in another? Yeah, thank you for that question because it's it's been very important, of course, in, in our overall development. Number one, very importantly, is that we now know that we are injecting a highly active biological molecule that does what it was designed to do in the eye. So uh, assuming that the drug gets where it needs to go, it will inhibit C3 and do so very efficiently. So that is important point number one. Point number two is that uh, all complement factors are not created equal and far from. So when we when I say C5 is very different from C3, that's important in ophthalmology as well because in ophthalmology, anti-C5 approaches have not worked in geographic atrophy. There has been the complete study, which was done by Dr. Rosenfeld in Miami, where injecting anti-C5 systemically, like they do with Solaris, like they do in PNH, did not have an effect on reducing geographic atrophy growth. When Novartis repeated that with uh, their anti-C5 antibody injected intravitreally, they too did not see an effect on geographic atrophy growth. I think by you know extrapolation, it is would be highly surprising if Zymura uh, has any type of effect because it's exactly the same mechanism of action. But by going upstream and by preventing C3B deposition in the retina, you do something very important to, you know, uh, have to, to kind of excite these immune corrective properties that we believe C3 have access to. And I think the easiest way to think of that is complement is an important danger signal to the immune system on one hand, and on the other hand, can directly damage or destroy target cells. Well, for the damage and destruction of target cells, C5 is important. But for the regulation of immunity, C3 is undoubtedly key and very important. So, you know, um, we are very subjectively, of course, but uh, hopeful that in this clinical trial, we will see something different than what has been observed with the C5 so far. Interesting. And and how do you, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, Optotech obviously had some disappointing news regarding its its uh, anti PDGF uh, approach. Does did did their outcome and some of the the failures in that space does that um, influence you at all, or, or or what is what was your takeaway from from the end of last year's clinical results? Anything uh, to help Apellus or sort of to guide you going forward? Yeah. Well, I think I think the the there are no direct impacts on us uh, because these are two completely different mechanisms of actions, of course, and different diseases. But um, on one hand, it tells you how how good of a target VEGF was and has been for us, right? And how hard it is to improve on what anti-VEGF can do for patients with wet AMD. Um, I think, you know, already from the phase two, especially knowing what we know now and looking back uh, you know, the lack of efficacy in phase three should not be as much of a surprise as many people make it out to be. Um, it's unfortunate for patients and an indirect effect, I think, on the retina in general is that obviously investors are now more skittish to make an investment in macular degeneration. And the sophistication of wet versus dry A&D is not one that a lot of investors dive into, and understandably so. So, Overall, yeah, I think uh, Oftotech absolutely and undoubtedly hurts the retina in general and um, 
you know, the disease macular degeneration and investments therein particularly. Now, having said that, what I think, and there's a lot of education that comes with that, the opportunity in geographic atrophy is, is poorly understood, I think, still, because uh, it's considered kind of the, the, the slightly smaller cousin of what in, so we have about two and a half million people in the U.S., with advanced macular degeneration, one and a half with wet, one with geographic atrophy. Um, but what we now also know, know five to 10 years after the anti-VEGFs came into the world is that most patients who are on anti-VEGF therapies for multiple years end up having geographic atrophy. So this does seem to be kind of the, the common denominator between wet AMV and geographic atrophy, this progressive dry degenerative process for which there are currently no therapies available. And that's where we're hoping to make a difference. Great. Well, we, we would look forward to good news there. Now the, the <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we, could, we could use them. In the other area I wanted to, to, to talk about, there's been a lot of discussion uh, within the biotech sector uh, about the, the Trump administration's immigrant, immigration ban that it had put forth. And it's obviously run into some, some challenges in court, and we're not quite sure where it's going to go. But I think the spirit behind that order um, is still at least perceived to be in place. And it's, it's one that could put, uh, put some doubt in people who want to come to this country and, and contribute to our innovation economy. You you signed a letter that was published uh, in nature biotech, or at least on its blog with 160 or so other CEOs and VCs, but you also wrote a specific letter to, uh, to uh, Senate president, Mitch McConnell, who was your Senator uh, being Kentucky. How did you come to become involved in the Nature Biotech letter and what made you take a stand, uh, a very public stand uh, in your state and, and, and write this letter directly to a national leader? We, we're, we've, we see biotech leaders sort of speak to uh, things that are directly relating to them regarding the FDA and such. And, and this certainly is something that can that will impact uh, biotech going forward. But how did you come to take that very public stand and uh, and get involved in the Nature Letter and write that separate letter to uh, to Mitch McConnell? Yeah. Well, th- thank you for that question. So obviously, I feel personally very passionate about um, the ability to bring the best of the best, and regardless of background, and uh, but, but based on good motivations and passion and intelligence uh, into the work that we do. Um, you know, I myself the incredible good fortune of coming to the U.S. and, and being offered the opportunity to do what, what we do here, at first at Potency, our previous company, and now at Apinis. Um The way in which I became involved is that uh, the, the biotech community is actually very small, um, and we communicate regularly with each other. There's actually distribution list uh, between those co-authors, and we share ideas once in a while. So when um, you know Jeremy, Ron, and, and, and the others came up with the concept of writing this letter to Nature Biotech, uh, it was literally a matter of a day or two to bring everybody around to signing on to what was clearly a well-crafted letter that I think voiced what most of us were thinking. Um, then in parallel with that, of course, there was the letter to uh, to Mr. McConnell so Apelis, uh, as, as you know, is based in Louisville, Kentucky, which is an unusual place for a biotech company. Um, Apelis, you know, through good fortune, again, had the ability to raise a lot of capital and bring kind of this little seed of biotech into mm-hmm. the state. 
Um, and so in a way, you know, we are important to the state of Kentucky and we are trying to do here something that's quite unique uh, and fragile. And we're having the best innovation possible from the most diverse talent pool possible is important so that that fragile seat doesn't become more fragile. And so for us, it was an opportunity to reach out to our representative, Mr. Mitch McCollum, who happens to be the majority leader in the Senate and tell him, listen, um, in a way, a call out to his priorities. You know, I mean, we are your constituency. Take care of us. And um, I'm very happy I did it. The response to it has been, I mean, quite frankly, overwhelming and, and overwhelmingly positive and very civilized. I mean, with a few exceptions. So mm-hmm. it's been a lot of fun. Were there cons- I haven't heard back yet. <laughs> you haven't heard back that was that was my question um have you had conversations with him before i mean you, you do have as you mentioned a, a very high profile in the life sciences community in kentucky uh do you have a relationship with with uh, senator mcconnell uh not anything meaningful i've met him a few times uh one-on-one but uh you know handshake and high and goodbye but n- never really anything of substance no. mm-hmm. So, what is your your general feeling? I mean, you 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 came to this country. You you contribute. You're contributing to our innovation economy as as uh, as a good percentage, I say, of of the leaders in in our sector have come from other countries to to help make our our innovation stronger, our innovation economy, our innovation economy stronger. How do you feel that? Uh, what impact might this ban, whatever form it ultimately takes, if it takes shape at all, what impact does that have on bringing people from other countries here to you know, bringing the best of the best from other countries here to contribute to what we have going here. Well, I, th- I think the, I think that people underestimate the, the broader impact of the signal that it sends. Okay. It's not just that we're going to miss out on, on the best and the brightest from those seven countries. Uh, but, you know, for example, for me coming here, I came here because this is the land where everything is possible, the land of opportunity, you know, and that, and that's a, a common denominator between this is the place where everybody ultimately wants to come and where everything is possible. And, you know, if you start messing around with that and destroying that perception, then, you know, you're going to have a lot of people that are going to be veered away from that. So to, I think it will have a significant impact on innovation. But I think beyond that, what I find disappointing is that there used to be, it used to be okay to have differences of opinion and actually should be encouraged to have differences of opinion as long as the discourse between those different opinions is based on ratio and logic. And then you go, you go back and forth using the rules of logic and ratio to end up with something in the middle. I mean, that's how things seemingly used to be more common in the past. And now it is a big wall, no pun intended, between the two and whoever <laughs> shouts the loudest gets the upper hand. And it's silly because, I mean, you know, there are, you know, Trump voters are not bad people. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, they have their opinions, which are just as valuable as, you know, my opinions or yours or anybody else's. And if we can have a dialogue where, again, the driving thing to get to a conclusion is logical discourse, then it's a beautiful world. But that element of making of having a rational underpinning in decision making has been lacking. And that's the problem I have with this administration. It's not their positions. 
It's how they get to their positions. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it is this whole thing of I believe, I believe, I believe. I mean, if we're going to run a country based on I believe, then we do have a problem. <laughs> so that's my, my personal issue with it. <laughs> and how, then the last question, how is uh, the the life sciences, the global life sciences industry change? I mean, there there are 20, 30 years ago, this was the primary place to go if you wanted to build these kind of companies. It's not the case anymore. The capital is coming from outside the countries, uh, from outside this country, and there are there are innovation hubs growing up across the globe, which is I think great for the world. But how if if the tone and the perception of this country's life sciences industry changes, from your perspective, I assume there are other places people can, people can go, talented people can go, and and find their success elsewhere. Yeah, and I think that. Uh I, I am a big believer that all all the ingredients are here to kind of take the next leap. Because in my view, when you look at healthcare and specifically drug development, the best is yet to come. Meaning that we still develop drugs very much based on the old paradigms of 20, 30 years ago, as far as it relates to the drug development process. In terms of reimbursement and, and, and value-based pricing, nothing has happened yet. But with the IT tools that are available to us, with you know artificial intelligence with you know all all of these things are going to have a dramatic influence on what we do and what we have here that's really unique is bringing all those pieces together there's no better place in the world to do that than here so yes there are all these innovation hubs outside of the us well capitalized well funded and that's fantastic but taking it to the next level where it becomes you know again more interdisciplinary where silicon valley starts playing into biotech and vice versa mm-hmm. that's where the opportunity lies and that's where you want to keep on holding that ecosystem where the best from everywhere ultimately still come here to create magic and so you know that is that that and it's a combination between being optimistic and believing in the impossible and you know having capital and having people available to to implement that and that's what I'm afraid with moves like this one uh, gets endangered. That's a that's a great point to end on. I uh, commend you for uh, for taking a stand. I think we're all learning that that how necessary that is. So glad you contributed to uh, to the larger letter and, and wrote your own as well. And of course, we're very grateful for you to for being on the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Tom. And uh, anytime, please let me know. I'd love to talk with you. Great. And I hope we have some. Uh, you have some great news to deliver at OIS at AEO in the fall. Well, thank you so much. We'll keep you posted. Take care. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Cedric Francois, thanks for joining us on the OIS podcast. Always a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for uh, the update on Apellis and also your insights on uh, on the national goings on. It's uh, an interesting time to be uh, everywhere, <laughs> in particular life sciences. So uh, very good to hear from uh, one of the CEOs who is uh, sort of taking a stand on uh, some of the larger national issues. So thank you, our listeners, again, for joining us. If you enjoyed this conversation and this podcast, please do give us a ranking on uh, iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to. Uh, it would help us a great deal to spread the word about this podcast. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, feel free to email me, tom at healthag.com. It's the word health, followed by the letters egy.com. We'd love to hear uh, ideas for conversations or potential guest uh, suggestions. And uh, finally, again, if you're going to be at OIS at ASCRS, you should register right away. 
go to ois.net, sign up for those breakfast breakout sessions, and we will see you in Los Angeles. <laughs>